understand we have a Marine in the house. Danny Negron, would you stand for a minute? Good to have you here, Danny. Thank you for serving. of her mission? There were five of them. The first one was she had to go see the king without being summoned. And in doing so, she would break a law for which the penalty is death. She accomplished that mission in chapter 5. Check. When she went before the king, he extended his golden scepter to her and spared her life. Second mission objective was to confess to the king that she had deceived him about herself. She had withheld the fact that she was Jewish herself. Well, she accomplished that in chapter 7. Check. Third mission objective, she had to oppose Haman. Nobody goes up against Haman. He's the king's second in command. He is the most powerful person on earth besides the king. She accomplished this in chapter 7. Check, and Haman was put to death. Her fourth mission objective was to not offend the king about his being, frankly, clueless about what was going on in his kingdom. He didn't even know that the edict he had sent out was going to mean the death of his own queen. Okay, He didn't, he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know that who the people was that was going to be exterminated. Now, she had to pursue this plan, which would probably strike a blow to the pride of this petty king that we've seen Xerxes to be. And yet, God gave her grace, and she accomplished this also in chapter 7. Check. With the unwitting help of Haman, I might add, he made it look to the king as if he were hitting on the queen, because she was sitting on the couch, and he kind of fell over her when he went to plead for his life. Not a pretty picture. One mission objective remains, and that is to convince the king to override somehow an irreversible law. Royal laws, which this edict was, royal laws in Persia were, they could not be reversed. They could not be erased from the book. They were set in stone. So this is the only mission objective not yet accomplished. It seems impossible how is an irreversible law reversed? How does the unchangeable change? We're going to see how that happens today in Esther chapter 8. The title of the message today is Mission Impossible Accomplished. Mission Impossible Accomplished. So we saw last week that Haman was executed on the same pole, gallows, that he had built to execute Mordecai. But there's still some unfinished business. Yes, Haman was dead, but his legacy lives on. The law that he had written and sealed with the king's signet ring, so it has the authority of a royal law, 
that law that commanded the destruction of the entire Jewish people in the empire, that law was still in place. Any royal law written in the, in the Persian Empire, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, is unchangeable, set in stone. You can't take it off. You can almost hear Haman laughing from the grave. They could kill him, but there was no way they could overcome his law. It was unchangeable. Maybe you're dealing with a situation that looks unchangeable. It could be a spouse who just will not change, no matter how much you talk, how much you pray, how much you love him or her. It could be a child still growing up in your home, or a child full-grown and on his or her own, who refuses to change their behavior or their attitude. It could be an illness that the doctors say is untreatable, incurable. It could be someone you care about who refuses every effort you make to speak with them about spiritual things and, and, and bring them to know Jesus. It could be a document that is written against you. Custody papers, credit history, debt, criminal record, bad job review. Papers that, from a human perspective, seem unchangeable. Take heart. I want you to take heart. I want to show you today an unchangeable situation that changed an impossible mission that was accomplished to let you know that God can change anything. Anything. Your situation will not be the first you've run into that you cannot like us to pray for a moment. Something may be running through your mind, through your heart, about this, an unchangeable situation, a dark situation, an impossible situation. Let's pray. Would you lift that up to the Lord? Lord, we thank you that these things, though they are impossible for us, We're going to see this in Esther 8. There are three things that change. There's the changing of a heart. That's always there. There's the changing of the heart, the changing of a law, and the changing of a standard. We're going to look at those three things in Esther 8 today. So it starts with the changing of a heart. In this case, the changing of the selfish heart of a king. When we ended last week, life had begun to turn around for Esther and her people. And things were continuing to, to get better, to brighten up in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Haman, who had planned and hoped to 
confiscate the Jews' property, now had his own property confiscated, and given to all people of all people Esther, the Jewish queen, who in turn appointed Mordecai to oversee it as a kind of trustee. Plus, with Haman now dead, you know the prime minister position is now vacant, and Xerxes could think of no one more qualified to fill his second-in-command position than Mordecai. So not only did Haman lose his wealth to Esther, he lost position to Mordecai. Everything Haman had been counting on to give significance to his life and to be kind of an unchanging security blanket for him, all of it was now Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the king. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let him let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's province. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Esther again approaches the queen, uh, the king, without being summoned. This is the second time now, and he again must extend that golden scepter to her to signal that he accepts her into his presence and that she will not die, just as it was in chapter 1. So once again, she dares to approach the king in his throne room without him having bidden her to come, to plead for her people. And once again, the golden scepter is extended. When Esther appeals to the king, she's there now to appeal to the king to do something about this mess that still remains for her family, her people. Puts her life on the line. Notice that she bases her appeal on how the destruction of the Jewish people would affect her personally. How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people, the destruction of my family? She's weeping. One thing I've discovered is that a, a woman's tears can melt the hardest heart. I do not know the chemical composition of a woman's tears. I don't know what's in them. But I know it's powerful. Then we just don't know what to do with a woman's tears, right, guys? Now what? Well, this king, with, with a callous heart and indifferent heart, he is moved to compassion by the tears of his wife. And his heart has changed, and his changed heart paves the way to change an unchangeable legal situation. So there's the changing of the selfish heart of a king. God can change the king's heart. He can change my heart. He can change his heart. Changing the selfish heart of a king. And that leads to changing a bad law. A bad law set in stone. Verse 7. Xerxes replied to King Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now, write another decree in the king's name, 
in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews, to the satraps, governors, and nobles, the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province, in the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote, in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Now here's the edict, verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and that is the day that Haman's decree is set. Verse 13, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Changing a bad law that was set in stone. We've seen that Xerxes was not heavily involved in the affairs of the kingdom, right? You know, he delegated things way too much. And it seems here in chapter 8, he would still rather not be bothered by the Jewish problem, but hand it off to someone else. You know, don't bother me with the details of running a kingdom. Don't, don't bother me with saving a people that's going to be exterminated. I have a banquet to go to. So he hands off his signet ring to Mordecai just as quickly as he had handed it off to him. And he tells him, you go fix the problem. That seems best to you, he says. Isn't it great when there's a problem that nobody knows how to fix and it's handed off to you with instructions to fix it? <laughs> so that's Mordecai's predicament. What do you do when you have a law on your hands that cannot be erased. You can't just remove it from the books. It's there. Well, you write a new law to balance it out. And that's what Mordecai does. This new edict did not and could not erase the old edict. It simply put another edict on the books. Both of them now are law in the empire. And we're going to look at this new edict in detail next week. There's some real uh, deep, penetrating ethical questions as all of this unfolds in Esther. Very challenging. We're not going to get into a lot of detail with that this week. We're going to look at that next week. We're really going to take a close look at this edict when it is carried out, in the way that it is implemented. But you'll notice in verse 11 that the edict gives to the Jewish people three rights, this new edict, three rights 
And you may have noticed in verse 11 that the language of the new edict, it, it's identical to the language of the, the first edict. It's echoing the language. And it's counterbalancing the old edict in every detail. Every detail. And there are three rights given to the Jewish community in verse 11. The first is the right to assemble to protect themselves. In other words, there would be strength in numbers. They would be bound together in community, you know, back to back, shoulder to shoulder. In other words, defense. They were given the right to defend themselves on that day. The second right that was given was the right to retaliate when attacked. They could attack back anybody who first attacked them. In other words, they could at that point go on the offense, defense, and then offense if attacked. But they were only allowed to attack those who attacked them first. No permission was given to the Jewish community for a first strike. The third right that was given by this new edict was the right to take the property. They could plunder the property of any who would attack them. So these were the rights given to this community, which this people, which was going to be destroyed by human edict. Defense, offense, reconciliation. This is important. Because God's people were at stake. They had to be protected at all costs. Because the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would eventually come through them. Now, King Xerxes didn't know that. Haman didn't believe that. But Mordecai did. Mordecai was a believing, godly Jewish man who knew the promises of God. He knew what was at stake here. And Mordecai was not going after his personal enemies through this evil. I personally do not believe that there is revenge in this evil. I think he understands that He's going after enemies who would attack and seek to destroy the people of God for whom the Messiah comes. And so he wrote a new law. He stood up against a bad law, an evil law. If you're like me, sometimes, you know, you think maybe it's not worthwhile to stand up against bad law. Do you think it's futile to stand in favor of life in the womb, to stand against abortion? Do you think it's pointless to vote as we did on Tuesday? No, we should stand for what is true, what is just, as best we can, even if it appears that existing laws will never change. Esther, chapter 8, sets something very different in front of us. The whole point of the book of, of Esther is this. Never discount a hidden God. Xerxes didn't see God behind the scenes. Haman didn't see God behind the scenes. Never discount a hidden God and what he can do. If you cannot see him, it does not mean he is not there. It does not mean he is not at work. See that? That's, that's the point of the book of Never discount a hidden God. So 
they get the word out right away about this, with this new edict. What was the urgency about getting the word out to the empire right away? I mean, there were still nine months now. You do the math, you look at the months. There's still nine months until annihilation day that he had set. Well, when you have good news, you want to get it out as quickly as possible. You don't want to sit on it. You don't want to keep it a secret. You want to get it out there. If you have good news, you don't send it out bulk mail. You don't send it out third-class mail. You send it out by overnight express. And that's what they did. They, they sent it out by Pony Express. These Arabian stallions, which were bred for speed, the king's horses. And they got on their horses and they got the word out. You don't sit on good news. You get it out. So for us, you know, it may be a while yet until Jesus comes back. But we've got some good news. The Savior has come. And the Savior has said He's coming again. That's really good news. And it may yet be a while till He comes back. All I know is His return is sooner than it was when we gathered last Sunday. That's all I know at this point. But I know that, and that's good news. And so we don't sit on the greatest news of all time. Let's get the word out. Jesus has come. Jesus is coming again. Though the month of Adar... Annihilation Day was nine months away. Just remember, the Jewish community was already suffering. You know, the first, that first edict went out, and there was, there was weeping, there was distress. It was terrible. It to be destroyed. So there was emotional suffering already going on, and there was probably some physical suffering, too. Their enemies had been legally emboldened to start persecuting them, to start mistreating them. They knew the authorities were not going to come to their aid. This was a people banned from this country. So their enemies would figure there's going to be no penalty for mistreatment, harassment, theft, maybe even murder of Jewish people. But a changed law changed all of that. So we've seen the changing of the selfish heart of a king, the changing of a bad law set in stone. There's one other thing that I want us to look at in chapter 8, and that's the changing of a standard. It's in specifically changing the standing of a dead man. If you can change the standing of a dead man, nothing is impossible. And we see that in Esther chapter 8. Verse 15, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe, fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province, in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the people to feast and celebrate. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews. So Mordecai goes out wearing, you know, a big crown of gold. This isn't your basic crown. This is the large crown of gold. You know, you're dressed in blue and white, fine linen, purple. And there's no record that Haman gained any of those kinds of honors during his time as prime minister. I'm sure
But Mordecai? Mordecai was a man as good as dead. He was a man so close. He was about an hour away from being impaled on a spike 75 feet tall, hung on that gallows by Haman. He was that close. He was as good as dead. And now he's being honored in this wonderful way. In the Hebrew text, the word that that is translated as happiness in verse 16 is actually, literally, the word light. It literally would would read, for the Jews it was a time of light and joy. And that makes sense. You put yourself in their sandals. They've been living under the shadow of this wicked edict of an evil man. But now, light had dawned in their darkness. And the darkness was being dispelled and replaced with light, with good news instead of the bad news. And in the New Testament, one of the ways that the message of the gospel, the good news that God has sent us a Savior, for our sins, one of the ways that message of the gospel, the good news is described, is light. Jesus is described as the light of the world. Light of the world. The light of God's love and His forgiveness and His mercy has come in the person of Jesus Christ to dispel the gloom of sin's darkness in our lives. When I read verse 17, really made me think of another verse in Psalms. Verse 17 says, There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And I kind of heard the echo of Psalm 30, verse 5, that says, Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That had been the experience of the Jewish community. They had been in a season of weeping, but now joy. As Esther lay down that night, she could hear the music, the laughter, of her people increasing. All of that was just coming right through the window. And she must have just smiled as she felt that to say, The joy has come. She had trusted her life into the hands of her hidden God. And she had obeyed his call to serve him right where he had sovereignly placed her. You remember how Mordecai put it to Esther? He said, who knows that you have come to royal position for such a time as this, a time of death, of darkness, of destruction. Who knows? And Esther took a deep breath. She said, get all the people who asked for you, and I'll get them. Here I go. She said, if I perish, Trusted and obeyed the hidden God. As we trust and obey, even in the dark, the darkness, the dark times in our lives, as Esther did, as we trust and obey, our God does the impossible. He does change the unchanging. And when our hidden God works like that on behalf of his people, the world who cannot see this hidden God, suddenly the world can see something. The world takes note of that. Something then happens that we all long for. It 
men and women and teenagers and children turn. They turn from the darkness and they turn to the light and they turn to the Lord. And they join the community who is forgiven, redeemed people. Verse 17, it's a wonderful fulfillment of God's promise through the prophet Zechariah. If you look at this, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, this is a prophecy that was made only a few decades before the time of Esther. Verse 17 of Esther 8 ends, And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Zechariah, just a generation or two at the most, previously, earlier, had said this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, what days? Days of darkness, days of destruction. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations Take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. Let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. Man, what a beautiful picture that is. A beautiful picture of people turning to the Lord in the midst of the darkness, seeing a light dawning in the lives of and saying, I don't know what you've got, but that's what I need. Can I go with you? Because it seems like God is the great What a beautiful picture this is of, of people from the nations turning to the Savior, to Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture. When the world sees what God does. And how are they going to see that? They're going to see it in you. When they see that in us, when they see what God does in us, when they see what God does through us and for us, they may begin to fear for their own lives apart from Christ. They may see for the first time that there's darkness in their lives because there's light over here. They may say, I want that. I need that. God help me. God forgive me. They may say, can we go with you? want to be one with Him and one of us. So I encourage you and I challenge you, will you step out to do that impossible thing in the darkness that God is calling you to do? I don't know what that is, but I think you do. Will you trust Him? Will you obey Him? Will you let Him change that unchangeable thing? Will you let Him bless you as you walk in His ways You know, everything had looked so dark and so hopeless for Mordecai, for Esther, for their people. Nobody, nobody predicted such a radical turn of events. But now it's a whole new ballgame. You just imagine the people of God, they're saying, we're going to live. We're not going to be destroyed. But the turnaround that the story of the sole survivor of the shipwreck, and he was washed up on a small deserted island, and he prayed fervently for God to rescue him every day, every day. 
every day he would scan the horizon for help, but none came. But he eventually managed to build a little hut out of driftwood to protect him from the elements. One day he got up and said it, got his little campfire going and went out to scavenge for some food, see what he could find. And he came back to find that his fire, the wind had blown his fire, and his hut had caught on fire, and this dark smoke was just rolling up into the sky. And it was a little bit more than he could take. And he was stunned, you know, with grief and with anger. God, how could you allow this to happen to me? Now I have nothing left. Well, the next morning, he woke to the sound of a ship approaching the island to rescue him. How did you know I was here, he asked. We saw your smoke signal. He didn't send the smoke signal, but God did. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders are God moves in mysterious ways in the dark, things that look like disaster and catastrophes to us. God moves in mysterious ways with wonders. You would have dreamed that Mordecai would be elevated from the pit of destruction, this close to death, to the pinnacle of honor. His righteous actions, Mordecai's righteous actions, at the beginning of this story, when he would not bow down to Haman, well, that brought Haman's intentional wrath the king's unintentional destruction upon him and upon his people through that year. But instead of going down into the dust of death, he's wearing a royal robe of purple and a golden crown of honor. How did that radical change happen? For us, this is impossible. But nothing will be called impossible for God. The hidden God. The hidden God who is never named not mentioned once in the story of Esther, the hidden God was sovereignly arranging and directing everything behind the scenes in the darkness to accomplish his own glorious mission to rescue his people and keep his promises that would culminate in the coming of the Messiah. So that hidden God was the secret agent under heaven. Now, when you see Mordecai in uh, verse 15, does it make you think of anyone else? Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. Make you think of anybody? Made you think of heaven. Yes, there is a shadowy figure that we cannot quite see clearly yet. He will emerge clearly one day, 500 years later. He will come as the light of the world. And that one is Jesus, the long-promised Messiah, the Savior. See, Mordecai is like a shadow figure. Mordecai is really a shadow cast in Jesus and then pointing forward to him and his arrival 500 years later. Jesus, the true, righteous man of God, who would accomplish the deliverance, the rescue, the salvation of all God's people in every generation, in all nations. Think about Mordecai. Mordecai was under the edict of death, but he 
escaped it. Jesus, he willingly placed himself under the edict of death, and he would not escape it. He took upon himself a kind of destruction that we cannot imagine. The full, holy wrath of his heavenly Father against all that is evil. All that is evil in this world. All that is evil in my life. All that is evil in your life. Jesus willingly took that upon himself. The one who had not sinned. And he willingly experienced, went through a separation from his Father, with whom he had known perfect, unbroken love and unity and fellowship for all eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? cried Jesus at the cross. Never experienced that before. Separation. Broken relationship. Destruction. He took upon himself the death and the destruction that He deserved the worst And he willingly in love took it upon himself. It was love for you. It was love for me. That compelled him to embrace the agony and the shame that he did not deserve. But he took it on his shoulders at the cross. The agony of crucifixion impaled on that stake. So the death fell upon him days later, he emerged from the grave, triumphant, wearing the royal robes of resurrection. And he did this to save me. He did this to rescue me. He did this to deliver us from destruction, to bring us back to forgiveness. And he did that to honor his did that to give you his spirit. And he did this, this blows your mind. He did this to draw you and me into their perfect circle of love forever and ever. Think of that circle of love. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one. And they said, we want to bring you into the circle of that love. We want to bring you into the circle of that love. That's, how can you find words Mordecai did not see his dramatic transformation. Nobody saw it. The world did not see Jesus' dramatic turnaround and transformation coming from death to life. The scriptures are full of this. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 wrote these words. He, speaking of the Messiah who would come, the suffering, righteous servant of the Lord. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, blood everywhere. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. Do you see that? This righteous Savior, Messiah, came, and he was slaughtered, murdered. What a terrible end. But of course, the point is that's not the end. But nobody saw it coming. 
verse 11, after the suffering of his soul. Wait, what? Wait a minute. Time out. After death? Wait a minute. You're blowing my categories here, Lord. <laughs> after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, says the Lord, I will give him a portion among the great, he will divide the spoils with the strong. But at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're talking about here today. From death to life. The Apostle Paul writes about it in his letter to the Romans. He just starts off singing the praises of God for the gospel, this good news that there is a Savior who's come from God for us. He says, Romans 1, verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God, son of man, son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. God did all that. If he raised the dead to life, if he did the impossible, if he changed the unchangeable, then nothing is impossible for him in your life. Nothing. Nothing is impossible for him in your life, in my life, in our life together, or in our mission to our community and to our world. You know, who are we? Well, we are a people of grace, renewed to serve our community and our world. Those are the words that are before us every Sunday. But we should not be able to do that. It's all of grace. We're, we're dead people who have been made alive. Our, our standing has been changed. It's all of grace. You see, a law was written against me. A law was written against me. And in its simplest form, that law, you find it in the Scriptures, it says this, the soul that sins will surely die. Boom. Period. The soul that sins will surely die. Have you sinned? I have. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. No one is righteous. No not even one. The soul that sins will surely die. So death was upon us as sinners. And that law was just. And that law was unchangeable. Not because of the customs of an earthly kingdom like Persia, but because of the character of a heavenly king. God is holy. And that is unchangeable. Because God's righteous character cannot change, neither can his condemnation of sinners. The soul that sins will surely die. So we all perish in our sins. But God says, no, it will not be so. How do you reverse an irreversible law? God wrote a new law, as he had promised long ago, and he wrote it in the blood of his son on an old rugged cross, impaling him on a spike high up on the hill of Calvary, and did that for your sin. And the night before Jesus died, he passed around a cup to his followers. The night
right before he went to that cross, he was nailed on that spike. And he passed around a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, my blood will bring you into a whole new relationship with the living God. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. The soul that sins will surely die. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. God wrote the new law. And God's new law superseded the old law and its power to destroy our lives. And we live. We live believing in Jesus, that the blood of Jesus will purify me from all my sin. You believe it. That's what God has done for you. So great is His love for you. You know, we cannot go back and change our past. We all have things that we've done wrong. And there are things that we should have done that we did not do. And we carry regrets. We carry shame. We carry guilt. We're all in that boat. All of us. And we cannot go back and change the past. But anyone can start from now for a different future. You can start wherever you are. It doesn't matter where anybody else is. Where are you? You can start wherever you are right now. Start in your present impossible moment. Cast your life into the hands of a Savior named Jesus. Trust Him with your life. And then watch and wait for Him to change the unchangeable, to bring His light into your darkness, and to make a, a new future for you. A future that is full of hope, full of joy and gladness. Let Him give you a happy heart. We see that in Esther chapter 8. Let Him give you a happy heart that is able to celebrate life in the light instead of fearing trouble and dreading death in the darkness. That is what He has done for you. Will you believe it? Will you live? The soul that sins will surely die, but the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. That is thank you for what you have done. You gave up your lives. You perished that we might live. You came alive to bring us alive. Lord, we bring to you our hearts. They need changing. Lord, we pray that you will be the light of life. You said, Lord, that whoever follows you will not stumble in the darkness, but will have the light of Lord, shine your light into our darkness. Show us your sin. Show us your fault. Show us the blood that cleanses, the blood that atones, the blood that brings us back, forgiven to the Father. And then let us live for you. Let us hand our lives over to you. Say, this life is not my own anymore, but I belong to you. Let it be for your honor that the world may see. Lord, you are hidden from our world in so many ways, and the world will not see. Lord, pour out your grace that they may see something of Jesus, something of your love, something of your life in our lives, in our life together, in your people around the world, that they
would say, let us go with you. But somehow, God, let it be for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name. Ask the worship team to join me on the platform. And uh, also the prayer team, if you would come to the front. I really do want to encourage you, if, if God has touched something in your life, something that you're, you're wrestling with and you feel like you're, you know, you're in the darkness and you've got, you've got these dark corners of your life where things are lurking that just, they're frightening to you, they're destructive to you, and, and it just, there may be situations you feel are never going to I really want to encourage you to take that, those steps of faith to actually walk from where you're, sit, you're seated. Come up and let somebody pray for you. It's not an extended counseling session. It's just a prayer. It's prayer for God to work, to change what is unchangeable, to do the impossible, to bring light in the darkness. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be afraid. Come. We all need help. We all need each other. Worship the Lord and, and come for prayer as you're singing. Just come right from where you're standing. Just come down front and say, This is what I need prayer for. Would you pray for me? And they will.